Welcome to Home is Where the Torah Is, the podcast series recorded in our homes and sent directly to yours. I'm Leon Morris, the president of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. In this series, we get to learn from six members of our talented faculty as they consider Jewish perspectives on the notion of home. Stay tuned after the lecture for a brief conversation in Chavruta I'll be having with Mati Rosenshine, the gifted architect of our new building, as we pick up on an idea or two expressed by our teachers. In today's episode, we will learn from Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy as she discusses the windows of the Beit Midrash. God, in the light of your face, you have bestowed upon us life-giving Torah and kindness and love. At this time of year, I think a lot about this line in the liturgy. As the weather changes, the first thing I do is move my davening to the garden. I know that it is a metaphor that God's light gives us kind, gives us Torah Chaim, and yet the symbol instinctively translates into my live, lived experience. As the sun shines on my face and shoulders, I have a sense that the light is a sign of divine love. A comparison of the parallel bracha in the Mari prayer, which is much shorter and omits any mention of light, makes clear that this is already intended in the liturgy itself. Light is a powerful and obvious symbol, universally, and our tradition is no exception. Isaiah holds out our potential to be or legoyim, a light to the nations. We call Hashem Ori v'ishi. God is our light and our redemption. We say in Yeshayahu, Kumi ori kiva oreich kavod Hashem aleich zarach. Arise, shine, for your light has dawned. The presence of the Lord has shone upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick clouds the peoples. But upon you the Lord will shine and God's presence will be seen over you. And nations shall walk by your light, kings by your shining radiance. That's about light. These days, however, we've been spending a lot of time inside our house and at home. And that's got me thinking about windows. And this thinking about our own home also provides us with an opportunity to think about our home of Torah learning, the Beit Midrash. What kinds of windows do we want and need in both our family homes and our Beit Midrash? How does form inform function and symbol create experience? In order to shed light on this question, we need vision for our building. Mashal and nimshal, symbol and function, are inseparably meshed. One place that is powerful to turn for guidance is the windows of the Beit Migdash, the temple. When King Solomon builds his Mikdash, 
you can find, um, which you can find uh, the source for on your accompanying source sheet, if you so choose. The first thing narrated after the size of the building is the windows. He made for the house um, windows that are shkufim atumim. Something incredibly defining about having, about having windows that come even before walls. We don't know very much about the windows, but they are described with a very unusual terminology. Um, shkufim atumim. The Abarbanel tries to define these words. Um, shkufim, from the language of an opening and an overlooking, as in, as in Genesis 26, and Avimelech spotted, or Judges 5, by the window she peered. Atumim, he says, is from the language of closed, as in Proverbs 21, he closed his ears. So shkufim means open, and atumim means closed or sealed. And as the Abarbanel points out, that's an oxymoron. These two words just don't make sense together. And all of the commentaries have something to say about it. Either they understand it as lattice, or perhaps it's shutters, or maybe it's glass or fortress windows, something that provides a lot of privacy and yet vision to the outside. But those are technical solutions. I prefer the drash, which opens up the soul. In the Psikta Tzarev Kahana, it says as follows, also on your source sheet. Amar Rabbi Hanina, Chalonot hayu b'beit mikdash, Umihen hayta ora yotzeit leolam, Umatam, V'yas labayit chalonet shkufim atumim, Shkufot hayu v'atumot hayu, Maktinot mibifnim, Umarchivot mibachutz, K'day lotzi ora leolam. Rabbi Hanina said, there were windows in the temple, and from them light would disperse to the world. What is the reason? He made for the house windows that were broad and narrow. Translating shkufim v'natumim here, broad and narrow. Both broad and narrow. They got smaller within and broader on the exterior, exterior in order to disperse light to the world. Amar Rebbe Levi, b'noheg mibifnim, k'day lachnis ora letocho. אבל חלונות בית המקדש לא היו חן, אלא מקטינו במפנים ומרחיבות מבחוץ, כדי להוציא אורה לעולם. רבי לוי said, the custom, that is the standard, is that windows open inwards in order to draw the light in, but the temple windows were narrow within and broad outside in order to disperse light to the world. As the Gemara, um, as the Gemara states, does God need the light that would come in through the windows? No, the windows are focused entirely externally. They're not serving the building to make the building nicer. That is full with God's presence. Rather, this building is serving the outside, projecting the light of the Mikdash out to the world. The the windows are pure symbol, and they're symbol of a mission. Ki mitzion teitze Torah, that from Zion should go out light, the light of Torah. Wow, that is mission. 
the Mikdash, the Beit Mikdash, the temple was there to serve the world. Its focus was beyond itself. It was broadcasting inspiration, love, Torah, justice, and divine imminence. I love it. I love it. And then I paused. Because if it's all about projecting outwards and sharing the light, why have a building? Suddenly, walls made no sense to me. I found myself thinking about the falling walls that were found in the Beit Midrash in the famous story of the, of the oven of Achnai. There, Rabbi Yoshua commanded the walls to, stay, to stand still as they were falling. But given what I, what I just learned, let them fall. We've got to get out there. We've got to teach Torah. We've got to put a sook on the back of our truck like Chabad. We've got to dance on the roofs of the cars like the Nanachs. We've got to go door to door like the, like the Mormons. And moreover, let our Torah really be Orlegoyim, an inspiration that impacts the larger world, translating the Torah values of Chesed, Sedek, Mishpat, Tikkun Olam into, a, into the precious Jewish state in which it is located. And I was all about it for a while. I was ready to abandon the Beit Midrash and bring my Torah straight to the marketplaces and the streets. After all, I'm the director of the social justice track. And then I learned another Gemara, the Gemara about the Kodesh HaKodeshim. In the Yerushalmi, Masechet Yoma, it says, Tani, ad shelo nital ha'aron, haya nichnas v'yotzei l'oro. Before the Aaron was taken, the high priest would enter and exit by the light of the Aaron, by the light of the Holy Ark. Once it was taken, he would grope his way in and grope his way out. That is to say, that there were, in the Holy of Holies, there were no windows. It was a place that, was, that either generated its own light or once the Ark of the Covenant was lost, it remained completely dark. Why not have windows in the Kodesh Kedoshim? Well, when you give it a little bit of thought, that too becomes clear. Symbolically, the Holy of Holies re represents the most intimate, protected place, the bridal chambers, if you will, of God and the Jewish people. The Ark of the Covenant could be considered a kind of a bed, and on top of it were two Kruvim, cherubs. And it is said that when relations between Israel and Hashem were good, those Kruvim would be intertwined and embraced as if making love. Of course you don't want windows for that. No one ought to see that. At a time like that of intimate embrace, there is no one else and nothing else in the world. The so the Gemara here is offering an entirely different understanding of sacred space, an under of one of total intimacy, of privacy, a sense of singular and absolutely exclusive devotion. In such a place, windows are absolutely impossible. And that was kind of a shock for me. It was one of those moments where learning Torah rocked my understanding of the world. It was totally in tension with the ideas that I was thinking about when I sat down to compose this class, about the light on my back when I daven and the way light elevates us spiritually and impacts those of us who are outside the temple. 
And when I thought about it more, I realized that this idea of intimacy as well as light is already implicit in Shlomo's language about the Beit HaMikdash. Shekufim atumim, open, closed windows. On the one hand, there's service to the outside world. Um, but it's also totally autonomous from an internal perspective. We don't theoretically need anything from the outside. On a recent-ish vacation to Greece, I got a window on this. I was on, this, I was on a stunningly beautiful island of Santorini. It's considered one of the most captivating places for sunsets in the world. And there was a church positioned perfectly at the top of a hill. And I couldn't believe that it actually had no windows at all. And then I reflected on this Gemara. Similarly, the Greek, Greek Orthodox churches, they love dim lighting in a church. And all the windows are high up so that they let in a little bit of air and light, but just a little bit. And there's no way to see in nor to see out. And I understood from this that there's something about the tension an oxymoron, which is really an oxymoron, pure paradox, that the mikdash is a place that is private and intimate, and yet also turned outwards, and the windows are reflective of that. And once I think about the intimacy of that Kodesh Kodeshim, I can understand that intimacy and also the function of the walls, that there's intimacy and there's also safety and protection. It's not for naught that the temple is called a sanctuary in two senses of the word, sacred space that also provides refuge. Holding onto the corners of the altar provided sacred protection, just as walls provide a shelter from the storm. So we've learned a lot from temple windows. On the one hand, there's tension about windows in general. They could be dangerous, distracting, a violation of privacy. We have a desire to live in holy dvekut with God, intertwined in embrace and sheltered from the storm. And on the other hand, there's an imperative to windows. They're the first thing mentioned about the temple. They are a bridge to the world around, a realization of our destiny to bring the Torah outside. Walls give a nod to the danger of the outside, while the windows make sure that you're conscious of our outside obligations. We saw a similar thing, or you could find a similar thing, in Noah's Ark. If you want to be a tzaddik, you've got to have a window. And that was the first thing they built in the Mikdash. By building, however, these windows that are shakuf and a tomb, you can combine both of these desires. The boldness of ki mitzion Torah a mission projecting outwards combined with the safety and intimacy and intensity that's possible in a Beit Midrash, the liminality of a window which is so very different than open air or even an open door. So we could stop here and we could definitely say Dayenu, but I'd like to introduce one more level of significance to the windows in our home and in our Beit Midrash, one that's found in a rabbinic story which is profound in its capacity to humbly self-critique um, the way that only rabbis can do. In the interest of time, I'm going to bring it only in the English.
Um, it tells the story. Once upon a time, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, was coming from Migdal Gedor, from the house of his teacher. And he was riding leisurely on his donkey by the riverside, and he was feeling happy and elated because he had studied much Torah. And now there's a little bit of ambiguity because everything is in pronouns. Um, there he chance, uh, chanced to meet him, an exceedingly ugly man. He greeted him. Peace be unto you, Rabbi. He, however, did not return his salutation. He said to him, Reka, how uh, worthless one, empty one, how ugly you are. Are all of your fellow citizens as ugly as you are? The man replied, I do not know, but go and tell the craftsman who made me how ugly is the vessel which you have made. When Rabbi Elazar realized that he, what he, that he had done wrong, he dismounted from the donkey and, and prostrated himself before the man and said, Oy, I submit myself to you. Forgive me, forgive me. The man replied, I will not forgive you until you go to the craftsman who made me and say to him, How ugly! is the vessel which you have made. Rabbi Elazar walked, continued to walk behind him, prostrating low all the way to the city, at which point the people of the city prevailed upon the ugly man to forgive him. The story is dumbfounding. How could Rabbi Elazar by Rabbi Shimon have learned so much Torah and then act so cruelly how could he not realize that this ugly man was created in God's image and deserves to be treated with so much dignity? It seems as though the contrast between the beauty of the Beit Mikdash, uh, of the Beit Midrash, was so jarring for him as he met the, rea the reality, the harsh reality of our world which can be so cruel that he completely lost control. What's gone wrong, what, what's gone wrong is the architecture. Rebbe Lazar has been spending his time in Migdal Gador. Migdal Tower, Gador Walled. What we, what we might call the Ivory Tower. He has been isolated without windows, and as a result, he's lost touch with what's happening in the world. He's self-assured and he's arrogant in his isolation. He needs to come out into the world so that the ugly man can teach him the Torah that he really needs. He's learned much Torah, but his Torah is so flawed. It turns out that the teacher that he needs most is the ugly man. And only after he descends from his isolated tower can he connect with that deep Torah. And when he does so, he re-enters the Beit Midrash with new wisdom. Soon after the story can ends, Rabbi Lazar bar Rabbi Shimon entered the Beit Midrash and expounded thus, A man should always be gentle as the reed, and let him never be unyielding as the cedar. And for this reason the reed merited it that should have been made a pen for the writing of the of the Torah, Tfilin, and Mizuzot. So in this story, we really understand that the windows are an imperative. 
not but not an imperative so that the ugly man can receive the light of Rabbi Lazar bar Rabbi Shimon, but rather so that Rabbi Lazar bar Rabbi Shimon can learn from the ugly man. This is the rabbis critiquing themselves. Yes, sometimes we need to wall ourselves in under the under the protection and the intimacy of a migdal or a mikdash or a beit midrash, but there almost there must always be windows. First and foremost, because kimitzion teitzei Torah, the beit midrash must project must project light, so that it can be an or legoyim Torah chaim and avat chesed. It should be a reflection of Hashem's divine countenance. The windows remind us of our responsibility to bring our gifts to the world around us to make sure that our Torah impacts beyond our narrow community and bridges the chasms that separate our people. But those windows also serve us, the ones inside, be it our private home or our Beit Midrash, to have Torah Chaim and Avat Chesed. We cannot be walled in a tower. We must learn from everything and everyone in the world both beautiful and ugly. We need them as much as they need us. And so the windows are a three-way imperative, both in our private homes and in our communal, communal Beit Midrash. Protection. Sometimes at Pardes we call this the Pardes bubble, the intensity of a community which is idyllic and brave, and yet liminal crossing boundaries and having cross-fertilization, Torah that both comes from the world and goes out to it. For many years, I've been blessed to be part of a community that does just that. The special mission of the Parde Social Justice Track that I'm privileged to direct um, and the community engagement uh, piece, which I'm also privileged to, uh, to supervise is to make, sure that, uh, to make sure that we go out into the world, we learn about economic justice, and then we go and learn about how it's working on facts on the ground at our next door neighbors, the Israel Free Loan Association, OGEN. We learn about Jewish, non-Jewish relations, and then we go and volunteer um, in the African, refu uh, in, the, in the Jerusalem African Community Center. How great is Torah that brings us to action, to blood drives, to visits to the nursing home, to community cleanups, to teaching English. This is true of the social justice track, and it's true of Pardes as a whole. Um, our, our special mission as a diaspora-Israel connection, bridging that chasm, Absolutely. And yet Parde students bring a unique Torah perspective here to Israel. They help us to bridge the, the chasms between the denominations, to help us understand the special contribution that American Jews can bring to Israel, to understand the power of civil society and the rich contributions of all sectors of the Jewish world. It is such a privilege to teach in this institution. We may be blessed to more, to more deeply integrate the message of windows in our private homes, as well as to build a Beit Midrash whose form will reflect this, its holy function. Thank you very much.
This is Leon Morris. I'm sitting here with Mati Rosenshine, the architect of Pardes' new home, Babe Karen. Hello, Mati. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, Mish Hammer Kasoy's beautiful shior was anchored in this description of the windows of the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, as shkufim atumim, open and transparent and closed and sealed. How, as an architect, do you go about balancing a sense of intimacy with a sense of transparency? Okay, well, there's a, a true challenge in doing that. There's a, a huge tension between those types of spaces. Um, I'll start by saying, um, or sort of stressing, the importance of intimate spaces. Um, and I think this is particularly relevant for the days that we're going through now, mm. um, following approximately two months of, of almost solitude for, for many people, um, which I have to say um, has been, whereas it's stressful and challenging, also an, an amazing experience. Solitude is, is a real uh, opportunity for people to reflect and think um, and, and that has been, um, in a way, a very positive experience. Um, that happens to bring to mind um, um, the, the text, uh, The Poetics of Space, or the book, The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard. And in the chapter called The House from Cellar to Garret, he speaks about the uh, incredible opportunities associated with solitude, with, with intimacy. In, in that, um, he talks about the um, the uh, freedom to, to dream and the freedom to, to uh, daydream and how conducive it is to, uh, to renewing oneself intellectually and psychologically and, and spiritually. He talks about uh, sites of interiority and uh, contemplation. He, in it, refers to Baudelaire, the uh, French poet, who talks about the uh, practice of the art of fertile laziness which is important for our intellectual renewal. So I'd like to, once again, stress the importance of spaces, of intimate spaces. Um, at the same time, uh, one can't live in total solitude. One has to uh, connect with other people. And there's no point in, in, in formulating ideas um, which cannot ultimately be shared and turn into sort of uh, synergistic um, uh, events. And so in the building, we are looking carefully at how to create those smaller, intimate spaces for very small groups um, and how to link them to the open spaces. Uh, some of those, uh, the tension or the division between those spaces will perhaps be with, with semi-transparent walls, some with completely opaque walls, um, some might be with uh, the term called a mashrabiya which is a uh, sort of Middle Eastern originated screen that allows to see out, but not necessarily in. Uh, so there are design tools that we're looking at to create the tension, the separation, and the connectivity between the inside and the, or the private interior spaces and the more public spaces within the building. So I wanna ask you, Mati, about the role of light as it relates to both intimacy and transparency. Um, how do you 
play with the use of light? And can light be a source for intimacy? Or is it only a source for transparency? How, how do you think about light? Okay, well, um, light, uh, in my mind, uh, is, is probably 95% of what architecture is all about. Of course, there are functional needs and practical needs and technical needs, but, but really uh, true architecture, magical architecture, is about light. And that's not to imply uh, that everything has to be lit up. I think it's quite the contrary. I think a successful, a successful piece of architecture and art uh, plays with light. And there is a, a sequence of light. Some spaces need to be uh, lit and high and, and wide and open. But I think part of experiencing architecture is how you move through the building and how transition changes your mood and your, uh, your feelings. And there should be, I think, in a building like Pardes, uh, a transition from very open, airy, lit spaces, extroverted spaces, to darker spaces, to more intimate spaces, uh, where the ceilings might be lower, where the acoustics might change. And that very much impacts how we interact with ourselves and how we interact with others, but certainly how we interact with ourselves. When we go from an open, noisy, more chaotic space with its, with its value uh, into more intimate spaces of solitude, which are with the, where the light is lower, and we're just with ourselves, that is conducive to, 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 as I said before, developing other thoughts and other ideas. And I think that transition and that richness of types of spaces is enormously important. Shkufim hmm. atumim, shkufim and atumim, sometimes both at once, the, the transparent and the intimate, sometimes, I think, often separate, but but bridged within a single architectural project. Absolutely. And I think that one cannot go from one abruptly to the other. Mm. It cannot be completely shakuf and then completely atum. There has to be a transition because then space becomes disorienting mm. and it can't happen abruptly. So part of molding space is not one space and then another space, but what happens in the spaces in between. The interstitial space is enormously important. How it's treated architecturally with light and materials. Beautiful. Thank you, Matik.